Welcome to the Overanalyzers. I'm Dan. I'm a concept artist and illustrator. And I'm Mike. I'm a software engineer. We are a weekly podcast, and this week we'll be talking about sort of our approach to learning that we've kind of been formulating over the last month or so. But first, we're going to take a shot, and then we'll get into it. Cheers. Cheers. Ugh, it's warm now. That's so good. <laughs> All right. So last last week, we kind of ended uh, hinting that we wanted to talk about Marie Kondo, who is the tidying up lady. She has a series on Netflix where she helps people deal with the clutter in their house. I think she has a book, too. And she has a method that she calls the KonMari method that's pretty popular. And I'm going to talk about that for a bit, and then we'll explain why that has anything to do with learning something or why we are so fascinated with her. So I have, like many people, especially I think as you get a little bit older, you experience exactly what Marie Kondo is trying to address, which is you acquire a whole bunch of crap and you don't know what to do with it. And I, you know, walk into the basement and it's full of stuff. And at some point it becomes a burden. It's hard to find anything. It's hard to deal with the fact that you just have all of this crap in your house. And listening to her talk and, and learning about her method, then actually trying it was this incredible revelation of, oh, that's what you do, that she figured it out. She knows how you're supposed to, to deal with this stuff. So if all you needed to do to deal with all the crap that's sitting in your basement or your garage or your attic or whatever was to just throw it out, you know, if you had a dumpster in the backyard and you said, okay, today we're going to take all the stuff and put it in the dumpster. I mean, that would be annoying. It would take a few hours, but it really would not be that big of a deal. You know, physically taking the stuff and throwing it away is not really the problem. Uh, the problem is that for all of those things, you have to make a decision about them. You, you take something and you have to say, do I, do I want to keep this? Do I want to put this in the house? Do I want to store it? Should I try to sell it? Should I throw it away? And you start thinking about things like how much did it cost and how much is it worth? And do I have any friends that would want it? And or how much it means to you? Or... Yeah, there's all, well, yeah, there's a million things that start to run through your head of you trying to figure out what do I do with this old toaster oven or whatever. Yeah. And most of those things that go in your head are things that you can't reason about very well. You know, you don't really know how much something would sell for or how much of a pain it would be to sell it. You don't know if you're going to use it again or not. Maybe you'll, I don't know, have somebody staying with you that wants a toaster oven, but maybe not. And so you have all these hazy, difficult to deal with, you know, difficult to reason about thoughts running through your head. And so you, we talked about this in the procrastination episodes, but that's the perfect recipe for just not dealing with it. And you multiply that by every single thing that's in your house and the task is monumentous. And she has this method where she says, no, don't do that. That's not the way you think about things. What you do, and I'm simplifying her method a little bit, but you put everything in a pile and then you pick it up and you hold it and you try to decide if it sparks joy or not. And if it does, you keep it. And if it doesn't, you throw it away. And there's a few other details, but that's pretty much the, the core of it. Wait, it, one more detail that I want to add is it starts with you're supposed to imagine your ideal lifestyle, 
which I think is extremely important. I think it is too. When we'll start talking about learning, but right. you imagine your ideal lifestyle and then you put everything right. on you're, pile. And, yeah. You are supposed to visualize what you're actually after, right? So there's right. a couple of things that that method does, uh, even aside from the visualizing. It changes the way you think about things because when you put everything in a pile, the, the default action is to throw something out. Everything in this pile is going away and you aren't deciding, do I throw this away or not? You're deciding, do I keep it? You know, it, it reverses the decision process. And then it says, don't, don't, you don't think about any of the other things, the things that you can't actually reason with or make decisions on. And you focus on this very particular emotion that you don't even hear talked about very much. You know, it's not really happiness. It's not, how does it look to you? It's, does it spark joy? Which is a weird thing, but when you start doing it, you start to recognize, oh, actually, kind of get what she means and you make that your point of decision and that's it that's how you decide what what stays and goes and so she essentially gives you a framework to think about things whereas before you don't really have one you just do whatever pops in your head trying to to handle this situation that you know gets to be out of control and it's I won't say it's perfect, but it's an amazing solution and way to think about this problem. And we alluded to this before, but I think that we need something like that in order to think about how you learn something. Because I think what happens is actually pretty similar in that you... I don't necessarily mean the very beginning stages, because I, I do think that those are somewhat different. But once you've immersed yourself a little bit in whatever field, could be guitar playing or arts or chess or anything, you start to get into this point where it feels like this infinite ocean of things. And you don't really know how to spend your time. You don't know how to decide what to work on or what not to. You don't really even know how to think. You tend to just do this thing over and over and hope that you're just going to get better as time goes on. That's that's the naive approach. It's equivalent to walking in your basement and just trying to figure out, am I going to use this in the future or not? Right. So that's what and I want to want to get into. Yeah, well, the Marie Kondo thing, you always have that thing to fall back on. It gives you something like a home base to always go back to. Yeah. Is the does it spark joy? And I think that even, even if that isn't perfect like maybe somebody else could have come up with a better way or a different way but having any way of actually thinking about things even if it's 80 percent good is worlds apart from just having no way of actually approaching things so we need right. that. that that's what i want and that's what i've been complaining about for the past couple months is that i have felt this way about a lot of the things that i've worked on like when I was in school trying to learn to play guitar, I had my own ideas and things that worked and things that didn't, but no one ever really helped me or even acknowledged that we needed a way of approaching this. It mostly just boiled down to sit in your room, spend a few hours practicing something, and then hope that that will make you better at it. Well, let's talk more about the frustrations of not having that yeah, I, well, we've, I think, both pivoted quite a bit in the past few months from, I think it started with getting frustrated or even just 
recognizing that I don't. Well, think... I would say I've basically always been frustrated, and I just kind of <laughs> okay. considered that to be part of the process. Which That's I a mean, good point. you know, some frustration is certainly going to happen, but there are certain areas that, like with art, that have snowballed and gotten bigger that have become major sources of frustration. Right. And it's hit sort of a boiling point that I really need something simple to go back and reevaluate those things. I, I think in some cases for me and probably you too, it's gotten to a point where you start to say, oh, I'm just not good at this thing anymore. Yeah. You, you switch into that mode of that fatalistic, I have not been gifted with the ability to do this thing. And we tried to establish last week that that is, doesn't seem to be any reason to think that's the case. Uh, right. It's the, the conclusion that you come to. And I was thinking about it like, well, with drawing, for me, it's been mostly figure drawing. It's kind of like you're a kid in the back seat of a car and your sibling just keeps hitting you or something. And you're like, stop, stop. And they just keep hitting you. And you just get more and more and more frustrated with it to yeah. the point where who knows what happens after that. But it just, it builds and it builds and it builds. And then you just don't want to have anything to do with them or something. But when it comes to learning, you just, you just figure you're, you're done. Like you can't handle it. So with, with figure drawing for me, it's just been, oh, forget it. Like I, I can't handle it. I'm not able to do that, whatever. And it's just, right. yeah. So we've, we've acknowledged that that's, that's where we're at. We think it is something that can be worked on and you, you actually can get good at figure drawing or anything else. And we've both been kind of independently trying to think about what is our, what's our equivalent of the KonMari method for learning something. And I think we both have our, our own ideas because we've been doing very different things. You've been focusing on figure drawing. I've been focusing on mostly playing StarCraft, done a little bit of music and looked at some other areas too. But uh, right. do you have, do you have your method or do you have any thoughts on, you know, what that, what that looks like for you specifically with the figure drawing and things like that? Yeah. So, well, I have nothing as catchy as does it spark joy and yeah, it, it's mostly a string of questions that I've, from reading the book Peak, I took a bunch of notes and I took the ones that are most relevant to me and kind of put them into a short list. And I, it's kind of a lot going on. And it's, it's hard for me to explain it without you knowing exactly what it is that I'm applying it to, but. Well, we can I'll, talk specific examples. That That's fine. If you want to really focus on specifically figure drawing i can talk about other things but all right well stop me when things stop making sense yeah i i will i think that we should both acknowledge that marie kondo is trying to deal with something that is i wouldn't say simple but it's it's a bit more narrow than this extremely large question of how do you develop a skill to a really high level so it's complicated i guess is what i'm saying and let's just acknowledge that I don't think there is anything quite as catchy and simple as what Marie Kondo has for yeah. this. So it'll take a while. So, so what I've been finding is that if I run through a few of these questions, I typically hit hit on one and I go, oh, that's the thing that I'm having uh, trouble with. Whereas before it was just kind of this nebulous, mm -hmm. I'm really frustrated, but I don't really know why. 
I'm just not cut out for this, whatever. So my first question that I ask myself is typically, do I know what it should look like if I did it the right way? And this is a one that I, if I'm feeling frustrated, chances are I don't know the answer to that question. So if I'm drawing mm -hmm. a picture, if I don't know how it's supposed to look when it's finished the right way, then there's no way that I could make it good. If that makes sense. So oh, yeah. if you're, if you're trying to, and actually this was a study done in the book, uh, they talk about, there's a study with a bunch of kids and they found that uh, when they were learning, I don't know, they watched the kids learn these songs and they found that the determining factor in them being able to learn the song fast and, and well, I guess, was their ability to know how the song was supposed to sound. So your ability to know how something should be is basically the determining factor in how well you do in, in learning that. And that was a huge epiphany for me. Yeah. It seems simple, like, duh, of course you need to know, you know, how it should look or how it should sound when you're done with it. But a lot of times you just sort of don't even really consider that. It's, it's funny, just to stop you for a second, that I've we've been fairly independent with our search for this and trying to formulate our ideas and that for me doing something totally different which is playing starcraft that's been the same thing for me like that is what i have arrived at as this is the key thing there's a lot of other things happening but they mostly fit into that single concept in that if you don't have this clear picture of what needs to happen everything falls apart from there Anyway, keep going. Right. Well, I, I mean, I, I could rant about this for so long because it was such a big epiphany for me. But, and actually, I, I'm in a band at work, like a little work band. So I've been playing guitar again for the first time in like 10 years. And there was a solo I had to learn. So I started learning the solo and how I used to learn it, which was 10 years ago. I mean, when, when I was in high school or something. Yeah. And so all of my same patterns just show up again because nothing's changed since 10 years ago. But the way I would go learning that solo before was just sort of play through it, maybe listen to the song, look at the music, you know, try it again, just mess around with things, experiment until some sometime in the future, I eventually knew it uh, at some level. But now I, I was doing that same thing. And then I stopped and I was like, wait a minute, do I know how this is supposed to sound if I played it perfectly? Do I know how that feels? Do I know what that would look like? Yeah. You know, what am I really going for? And as soon as I did that, you know, I listened to the song a little bit more and I was really focused on crafting this perfect solo in my mind before I go about trying to play it. And it worked really, really well. I mm -hmm. learned it exceptionally fast uh, because you instantly see when you go off course, you instantly know when you've hit something wrong or when you're going the wrong way. Whereas before, if you don't really know the end result, you end up just kind of guessing, oh, I, I think that was wrong or oh, that right. didn't really feel right or something like that. But when you know it really well, you know exactly when you're going wrong. And that's, it, it just instantly highlights the things you have to work on. I have, I have this story that I think I may have told on my YouTube channel a long time ago, but it's still this really memorable moment in my college career. And I, I wish that this had happened sooner. I think it would have helped me a lot. But 
I specifically remember I was working on a duet with this other guy, a guitar duet, and it was the the piece we were playing wasn't it's not what you would really think of as terribly difficult. It wasn't super technical, but it was long. It had some weirdness to it. I think it was a piece that was transcribed from piano or something, which for anybody who plays guitar kind of knows that when you write something for a guitar, it feels very natural. When you transcribe it from a different instrument, it feels really weird. Anyway, right. I'm trying to learn this piece and there just had a lot of weirdness to it and things that were just really tripping me up. And I remember me and this guy, Danny, we were going to perform it in a concert for, uh, you know, hundreds of people. And every single time we ever practiced it or played it together, I would mess up during this one section of the music. Just every time. Not always in exactly the same place, but one way or another, I would get tripped up and either I would just fumble and have to recover a measure or two later. That was best case, worst case, we would just stop and have to pick it up, which is obviously terrible. And when you're in music school or I mean, most colleges, I guess your time is very limited. You have a million things to deal with. And so there was only so much time I could really dedicate to this thing, but it was getting closer and closer. And no matter what I did and I practiced it, I could not get it to come out consistently good. Every single time we played it together, it messed up. And it was the day of the concert. And for reasons that I forget, I did not have access to my guitar for the six hours leading up to the concert. And I'm just thinking, this sucks. I know for sure that I'm going to play a concert in front of a bunch of people and I'm going to mess it up. I just, that's what's happened every single time. But I did have the music and I was kind of desperate. So I just figured, all right, I got the music. I'm just, I'm going to look at the music and see what I can do. And so I started, I didn't have a guitar, so I couldn't play, but I could pretend to play in my head this piece of music. And so I take that difficult section and I just try to visualize picturing my hands on the guitar. What do I do? And that, while I was doing that, I started to realize, wow, I'm very bad at this. I actually can't visualize what I am supposed to do. And it, it wasn't until after that I started investigating a little bit more about memory and actually found a, I think, one book that talked about this. But when I was playing the piece, I was relying on physical memory, just trying to, you know, have a physical sensation of what it feels like to play through the piece. I did not have a visual memory of what it, what my hands needed to do in my mind. It was just purely physical. And because of the weirdness of the piece and how awkward it felt, that physical memory would just get messed up most of the time. Anyway, I visualized the piece or that section of the piece that I always messed up. And literally the first time I ever played it perfectly was in that concert that night because I had not played it. I had visualized it. And that was just this incredible epiphany to me of, oh my God, this is what was wrong was that I could not picture what the piece was actually supposed to do. It's specifically what my hands were supposed to do during that section. But once I could, like I said, the technical difficulty wasn't really that high. It wasn't, right. you know, it was a memory problem or a visualization mental picture problem. And once I fixed that, which was not all that hard to fix, it was gone. That There was almost an identical example of that in, in the book, uh, Peak, where this researcher followed this, I, I think it was a classical piano player, and she 
you know, was incredibly good or, you know, one of the best, whatever. But the way she would go about learning a piece is she would, she wouldn't start playing it immediately. You know, she sits yeah. down with the music and makes notation after notation and she visualizes the way she plays the notes and the exact way mm -hmm. the, the song sounds and just taking all these notes, building this thing in her, her mind, you know, because she's good enough to where she can picture herself playing all the way through it. I, so I, I remember when that, during that, you know, experience of me looking at the piece, the only reason I even thought to do that was because I had read somewhere about these really high level musicians and performers. I can't remember the book or what it was, but somebody was talking about how these, these incredible musicians could learn a piece on the train without their instrument. They could read right. the music and just learn it that way. And the the author of whatever it was I was reading was describing it as if it was this incredible side effect of how good they were. They're, they're this amazing musician. They're so good at what they do that they don't even need their instrument. They can just look at the music and visualize it. And what the author did not recognize what is that that was actually fundamental to why they were so good is that they can visualize things like that. And that's what made me even try to do this, of just thinking, oh, well, I'll, I'll try visualizing it. And the effect was incredible. And I think that that is one of the most key aspects of being really good at something, like being a guitar player or any kind of performer, is your ability to visualize things. When I was... Oh, man, now we're just going off on one point. That's fine. That's I have, fine. like, six of these, but... When I was in high school learning guitar, I mean, I was obsessed with learning music. And this is yeah. where I learned the most and became, you know, good the fastest. This was my greatest era of improvement. And I didn't have that much time to practice because I'm in high school and you're at school all day and then you got homework and all that stuff. But what I used to do is just all day through every class, I'm sitting there going through you know, the fingering of mm -hmm. every song and just playing it through in my head and visualizing going through it. And then I'm able to play it when I go home. And that's something that I forgot about later. Like I just yeah. stopped doing. Uh, yeah. Oh, one more example. I, yeah. I took the, the SATs in, in high school at one point. And if you don't live in America, I don't know where these tests are done in the world, either. but they're, they're just some big placement test for, you know, everyone has to take them at the end of the year something i don't even remember but it's this big test and you were allowed to bring your calculator for the math portion so you bring this giant you know graphing calculator or whatever and i was never that great at math anyway but i which was i drive fault. an hour yeah 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 but i i drive an hour to the test place and i sit down at the seat and it's the math portion and i realized that i did not bring my calculator and of course, the cliche story, I did way better because I ended up taking the the test again. This was my second time taking it. Okay. Because uh, you were allowed to redo it or whatever, and I thought I could do better. But I forgot my calculator, and I did way better on the math portion than I did with my calculator. And I think that we rely so much on just experimenting or playing around with things or just hoping that the result will come if we try hard enough or we yeah. just mess around with things long enough. Eventually, the good result will come. But I don't think it works that way. If you really think ahead, the reason why I think I did better on the math 
portion was because I was really thinking hard about what I needed to to come up with or accomplish. And so yeah. I'm, you know, I'm not just typing numbers in randomly on the calculator and hoping I get the right thing. This this is what part of what has been so frustrating to me about this big question of how you learn something is that in many cases the thing that helps you is an accident you know the the reason the only reason why i had sat there and read the music and tried to visualize myself playing it was because i didn't have my instrument if i had i would have sat there and practiced it over and over and i would have messed it up again during the concert and it would have sucked that's what would right. have happened. I am 100% sure. Same for you right. on a test. You forgot your calculator. You did not decide that you shouldn't bring it. You just forgot it and wound up doing better. And I, I think I understand why this is so important, but it shouldn't be an accident. Like I said, even reading this, this book or whatever it was I was reading about how really high-level musicians can visualize so well, it was not presented as this is what you need to be able to do. It was presented as you should be in awe of how amazing they are because they're so good. They happen to be able right. to do this other thing really well. So that's... I have so many more examples of this. And I know. They just keep coming to me. And I know someone's going to say, well, what about when you're writing a song, you know, where it is just experimental or whatever? That... I think when, when you, and I'm not, you know, I'm not some famous musician who's written a bunch of good songs or anything, right. but this is just my thinking. I think that if you want to write something or you want to create a picture, you want to create something, it's a little different because, you know, you're not just mimicking the performance of someone else. You can't just study the end product, right. but the things that are important that you want to express in the piece of music or or the picture that you're trying to create, whatever it is you're creating, you need to know exactly what you're trying to say in order to say it. Um, I, I, it just, in response to that, what I have always experienced myself and in anybody that I was teaching and trying to help them with their writing abilities and everything is that when you're, when you're just starting out and you're writing music, Many people would get to the point where they could write very cool, very interesting, small pieces of music. I mean, they could write a cool guitar riff. They could write some a cool chord progression. They could write things that were relatively small that were really good. But the the bigger the picture got, you know, the you're trying to take a cool idea and turn it into or add other cool ideas and create this whole piece of music that has a beginning and an end and a, you know it's communicating something, right? Whatever that means that is a much more difficult thing to do. And I think it is for that reason in that a lot of people, and I and I was one of these people, like I said, I never got to the point where I was really great at this, but you know, I could play something and, and listen to it and formulate this idea of, oh, this sounds cool. I think it should do this. But my ability to visualize and understand what I wanted was very small. And trying to grow that into something bigger is a, a very fundamental challenge of how do you how do you develop that mental model of what an entire piece sounds like and how you move from one thing to another uh, anyway i i think that's yes your ability to do that 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 model that you have in your head is key to being able to compose even though that feels a lot different than just you being able to perform a piece that somebody else has written i think in many ways it, it is kind of the same thing happening 
Right. And as an artist and as any other artist ever, if you set out to just draw a cool picture, it will suck every single time <laughs> because yeah. that's not a real thing. And if you just set out to write a cool song, it will suck like a hundred percent of the time you have to have something to say. And that something to say is your, your goal. That's what it sounds like. If, if it's done right. 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 So, right, so <laughs> yeah, let's go ahead. So just to kind of get this into slightly more of a big picture, like I said, I've been playing a lot of, well, it doesn't matter really what I've been doing, but playing Starcraft, but I think this is very fundamental. I think for, for almost any skill, I think you can roughly break it into two different categories. There is the fundamental skill aspect, which in terms of guitar playing, you would think of that as how quickly can you play? How precisely can you play? Can you execute a chord without touching the wrong string? Or can you exactly time the movement of your right hand, say with a pick, with the, the movement of your left hand? And can you do that really fast? Like there's these athletic skill aspects to what you're doing. And then there's the other side of it, which is the mental informational conceptual memorization like everything that you do with your conscious mind uh there's there's that side of things and certainly the lines blur for for things but i to me the the way to tell them apart when you're trying to think about it is that something that is your conscious mind skill like that informational side of things the way you know that is if you can cram for it if if you could sit down for a Saturday and let's say you have a song you haven't learned yet and what you need to do is get the notes into your head. You could do that in a 10 hour stretch. You could sit there and read the music and figure out where your fingers go. You could even sit there and visualize what it ought to look like while you're playing. Like you could develop the memory aspects of learning that piece of music in this long session. Right. And, and that to me is how you know that it's a informational knowledge based conscious mind type of thing. If you are trying to play a scale or a riff and you can play it at 40 beats per minute and you're thinking, oh, by tomorrow I have to get this up to 180 beats per minute, you can't do that overnight. In the same way that you can't learn to, you can't cram for running a marathon in a weekend. It is a, a very fundamental thing that you need your body and these unconscious processes to adapt to over time. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Like I said, the lines get a little blurry sometimes, but I think that it's useful to think of it in these two different categories. And almost always, I think that we think that things are mostly the skill-based category, but they're usually not. Like with the guitar playing. Naively, say for this, this piece that I was trying to learn, I just figured that I needed to play it more and more. I needed to develop more skill in order to play it. But that wasn't the case. I needed to develop a clearer mental picture of what exactly needed to happen. And I think that's that's how people typically think of playing an instrument, is that I need to spend lots of time trying to play something. I'll get faster and I'll get smoother and I'll make less mistakes. And it's just this athletic pursuit that you just pour lots of time into and eventually right. you'll get really good at it. And I think that is absolutely the wrong way to look at it. And certainly those things are there. Like you can, you do have these fundamental athletic type skills that develop, but it, when you're getting stuck, 
it usually isn't that. Sometimes it is, and that's what you want, but it usually isn't. So going back to a couple weeks ago, when we were talking about typing on a keyboard, right? The, the, the main point that we were trying to get across there is that if you just do something over and over, you don't get better at it. Unless it's very beginner stages and you're completely new to it, then you will adapt. But you very quickly hit this comfortable point where you don't progress, right? And that, that I think, is the default state for almost anything. If you are playing piano, it's very, very likely, as you practice, that that will happen. Because that's just the natural thing, that you will play something over and over the same way. And you have to be very careful about getting yourself into a position where you actually are pushing your boundaries of those fundamental skills. They don't grow otherwise. They will sit right where they are and you will not get better at, at moving your fingers accurately and playing faster and timing things correctly and all that stuff um, if you don't get yourself into that very specific position. So here's where I'm going with this. Most things, like that piece that I was trying to learn to play, the problem was a mental problem. It was me not being able to understand, not having that clear model of exactly what should have happened. And because of that, I never pushed my fundamental skills at all. I would play the piece, I would mess it up, I would fumble around, because the mental side of it was deficient. I did not have the correct model. And so the fundamental skills that I thought I was working on were not developing at all. You follow that? Mm -hmm. So I think that that way of thinking applies to just about everything in that you should try and separate out what those two things are and when you sit down to practice and you just do something over and over you should be able to recognize when you actually are pushing your fundamental skills up to their boundaries and there's a million things that can prevent that from happening we said it's the default thing that they don't get pushed uh, but the the most likely thing, the thing that happens all the time, is that the mental model is deficient. You're missing something. And that will prevent you from ever pushing on those fundamental skills. So I started in my pursuit to, you know, kind of learn how to draw the human figure. Been kind of pushing on that. So I recently started to just focus on drawing the skull. And it had been a while since I kind of focused on this. So I, I know a little bit, but I was definitely rusty. It's been a year or so. I decided to start drawing the skull a bit more. And at the very beginning, this is a couple of weeks ago, at the very beginning, it's very difficult. I'm having to learn very fundamental things. And every time I draw it, it looks awful. And so then I fix it and I learn what's wrong and whatever. And then after a couple of weeks or so, I get to a point where I'm able to hit most of the big or solve most of the big problems. And it's not great or anything, but it's to a point where it's not horrible. It's not so awful. It's mediocre and it's fine. And then it started getting, I, I was watching myself learn this and it started getting more comfortable. And then I just kept doing it over and over again because, oh, hey, look, cool. I can draw a skull now. Mm -hmm. Look, oh my God, look, I can do it again. And it's great. And I realized after three or four days of that, oh my God, I have not improved at all because I'm now in a comfort zone. Like now I feel comfortable because I, I'm not dealing with anything horrible and I, I've, I've lost the need to learn much more. 
you know, from that point of view, I've lost the need a little bit because now I can just comfort comfortably yeah. just crank out skulls that look okay. And so that need goes away. The uncomfortableness of being pushed out of your comfort zone is gone. And now I'm just comfortable drawing these little skulls all day. Yeah. And I realized, Oh my God, I'm not improving. I'm stuck in the comfort zone. And, and this is uh, in the book peak. And I, I know other things other than peak, but it's the book I read recently. So it's on my mind, but he talks about homeostasis, which is Mm -hmm. without knowing much about the brain at all. From what I understand, it is basically the, the equilibrium state of, of your brain. It's like a comfort zone for your brain. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It's not a resting state, but it's like a, a balanced state. Right. Right. Where, where it's not being forced to adapt. Yes. And if you think about how you build muscles, which is always like the fallback example of this, but the way you build muscles is you put strain on them, you put stress, you put a a stimulant, and then the muscles adapt. And then you stress it more and they adapt and you stress it more and they adapt. The brain works the same way. And it is fundamental to learning. If you don't stress the brain, it cannot adapt. So it just sits there and... But what you need, when you're in your comfort zone, you are in homeostasis. You are, you are stagnant and not going anywhere. Yeah. So if you continue staying in your comfort zone, you cannot, it is impossible for you to learn. You cannot adapt to anything new. So you know you're learning when you feel uncomfortable. It's this really weird, not great feeling. You look like you're about to say something. So uh, I just I I've heard it said a few times that well, first of all, I 100% agree with the comfort zone thing, and actually, I even think that it very much applies to uh, lifting. In that, I kind of figured that lifting was relatively figured out. You know, you you got a barbell, you put an exact amount of weight on it, you try to you know push what you can do, and every week you get a little bit stronger. But I was in the past few months, I've been reflecting on this and my deadlift is my best lift and it has been for a very long time. I I like the lift. I feel really good with it. And it doesn't matter what program I do. It doesn't matter how I approach it or how many times a week or anything. If I put effort into my deadlift, I get stronger the deadlift. It's it's not super fast or anything, but I just it goes up. If I work really hard on it for a few months, I get better at it. Bench press is my worst lift, and it has been for a long time. And one of the most frustrating things in the world is that I will go lift, and I will I will work really hard on the bench press. I mean, I'll, I'll do it many times a week, or I'll do it once a week, it doesn't matter. I'll do all kinds of different programs. And I have gone for a year at a stretch with literally zero improvement, even though I have worked as hard as I could trying to develop the bench press. And I have started to realize after thinking about it more and doing more research and trying to understand what's happening is that my mental model of the bench press is not as good as my mental model of the deadlift. For whatever reason, I've always just felt pretty good with the deadlift. I see people do it and I understand what they're doing. I I am very familiar with certain sensations in my body, like the tightness around my hips and legs and core, and I know what it feels like to brace in the right way. And I'm able, when I do a deadlift, to push myself right up to my limits of what I'm able to do 
because I feel really good with it and I know exactly what it ought to feel like. And if I do a bad deadlift where I don't execute it correctly, I know exactly that I did it wrong and I, I, I know what went wrong and I can almost always resolve that. But for the bench press, I don't have that. Some days I will go to bench and it feels really good or good-ish. Other days I will do it and it doesn't feel so good and I have no clear picture of exactly why. And so I've started right. to watch more videos and look at people who are really good at, <coughs> sorry, look at people who are really good at it and start to work on my mental model, which first is just an image of, of me picturing it, but then that filters down into actual body positions and sensations, some stuff that's very hard to articulate, but it's this, this certain thing in your body to where I can or have begun to consistently get to the point where I can execute a bench, a bench press well, at least for me, to where I, I don't have that feeling, at least as much, of sometimes it's really good, sometimes really bad. I have a much clearer picture of what should happen, and I'm able, or starting to be able to actually hit my limits every week on the bench press. And lately, I mean, nothing major yet, but it has started to move, where it actually I am getting stronger at this lift that I previously had just thought that eh, it's just not really a thing. So I... <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is even in the past few months when we've started to talk about this and these ideas around, you know, creating this mental picture of things and, and this idea that there's there's some fundamental skills and there's some mental skills and things, I really didn't think that would apply too much to powerlifting. Figured powerlifting, I mean you're you're lifting a barbell. How much is there really going on there? You know, yeah, your form should be good so you don't get injured, blah, blah, blah. But that was about it. And then I've started to recognize that actually I think that this idea is what has prevented me from progressing on this lift for, I don't know, eight years. I think it's hugely yeah. important there. And Well, I've realized just doing this, I didn't have a clear idea of what it was like to draw, you know, a skull or the, the human figure the correct way. I yeah. just see, I you get on the internet and you see, you know, millions of great pieces of art, but they're all completely different. And your brain just kind of goes, oh, it needs to be all of them. It needs to be yeah. that good in every single direction. Yeah. And you don't have that one clear example of what it really should be. Yeah. And this, I, this is kind of a tangent, but people that are really good that started when they were children. So people that get really good at something when they're a child, they, my theory is that always they have a model. They have either a parent or a sibling or a cousin or, or a friend or some, some kind of model way to do the thing that they become good at. So like a, a prodigy child almost, or always there is a, a person that is close by that they model at the beginning, they model themselves after, and that's what kind of jumpstarts them on their journey because it's a very uh, single focus. It's yeah. a very shallow focus of, of a way to do something, and it just jumpstarts you right off the bat. Whereas an adult, we have just an infinite amount of of models that we kind of just piece together. Yeah, and they're all hazy know. and blurry. Yeah, and... and we're like, oh, it needs to be good. And it needs to be like this person online and, you know, we, I don't know. Yeah. I hope that makes sense, but. No, I, well, it doesn't mean, but. To me, this mental model is like the, the key to everything. I, th <laughs> or it's been such a revelation for me that. Yeah. 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 And 
I've been thinking about how... Let's take memory. This is something we read about in Peak. Not to use that as like the only example, but I, I, <laughs> I've been interested in the the ideas behind memory for a long time. I keep pitching Moonwalking with Einstein, which is a great book, but there's some other books too. And you can start to look into how people remember things. You're the, the people who can remember ridiculous things, you know, tons of playing cards or, you know, a million digits of pie, stuff that you just would not think is possible. And originally it was pretty well established fact that the average human could remember somewhere between like seven and nine digits or little bits of information if you if you read digits to somebody they could recall about the length of a phone number and that's pretty much it and it's funny while i was reading peak i was listening to or reading about him talking about these experiments where he, he basically he had this guy the the author of the book and he's a researcher where he would read the digits to the guy and he would have to recite them he'd read them at the pace of one digit per second and he would be able to recite at first around seven to nine digits. And they were trying to investigate if you actually could push this ability further. So he would he would basically be going one, seven, right, nine, you know, right. something like that. And, and the guy would have to recite it back. Right. And so at first he would read off eight digits and the guy would have to recite them. And if he was able to do that, they'd go to nine digits and then he would have to recite them. And they looked to see how far they could push this. And I'm reading the book thinking... Doesn't this guy know that we figured this out, that we know the techniques to do this now? But then I realized that actually the reason we know that is because of this guy. And this is where it all started was learning this. But they, uh, this, the guy that he was working with eventually got up to it was something like 80 or 90 digits, right? Right. And which nobody thought was possible. It was pretty well established that no, it's around seven to nine. Might, maybe you get some savant freak of nature who has a differently wired brain and they could do 10 or 11, but that that's really how we thought of it. But it turns out that actually, if you use different techniques, you can remember lots of digits. And now we have people that can do the same thing where somebody reads off a digit one per second and they're in the hundreds, you know, 300, 400, they can go at a stretch. And the difference between somebody who can remember seven to nine digits and somebody who can remember 300 is the way you think about it. That's that's literally what it comes down to. And the way you remember a lot of digits, and we'll we'll talk more about memory in some future podcast. I we've said this forever, okay. but we will, I swear. I care about it a lot. We keep forgetting. <laughs> right. Okay. Right. Uh the the difference or the way you do it is or the 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 established techniques are you take pairs of digits like 17 and you associate that with an image you know say i don't know taylor swift stabbing somebody with a knife which and and the idea is that it should be a provocative memorable image and you learn through memorizing that 17 equals taylor swift stabbing somebody with a knife and then you you know the number 42 is something else it's a banana and then if somebody reads one, seven, four, two, you picture Taylor Swift stabbing a banana with a knife. And there's other techniques too, like the method of Loki, where you picture a location and you put the things in there. And basically you, you add together these very odd techniques that it's weird that that's how you do it. That the actual way that you learn to memorize 
hundreds of digits. Now you increase your ability beyond the average human by a thousand percent or more is that you picture Taylor Swift with a knife stabbing a banana. Like that actually is the answer to that problem. And I was reading about the history of this in that we have actually known this for a long time, that this is the way you memorize. We didn't necessarily have it quite as refined as we do now, but hundreds of years ago, this was actually taught in schools that the way you memorize things like that was to create these very vivid mental pictures that your brain is very good at holding on to. And at some point, the authorities decided that this was a bit weird and maybe a little bit sacrilegious. And so they decided to not teach that anymore. They actually banned it from schools and said, this is weird. Let's not do that anymore. And now the average number of digits that a person can remember is seven to nine because we dismissed it collectively as a society because it was kind of odd. And it only has recently come back as the way we think. But anyway, without getting too far into the memory side of things, what is so incredible to me is that we would discard the answer to the problem of how you remember things because it's kind of odd. And I think that that is what happens across the board for all kinds of things, like how do you get really good at music? I think a big part of the answer is that you need to develop your ability to visualize things. But we don't really talk about that because it's kind of weird and it's a little bit nebulous and it exists in your head and you can't really print that on a page and say, do this. So we mostly just dismiss it or don't even really acknowledge it. And I think there are a lot of things like that that go into developing your skills. And the plan for the foreseeable future is to try and investigate a lot of those things. But I don't know. That's just really mind-blowing to me that that's where we're yeah. at. Well, we're talking about them. So. Yeah, we are. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so... I guess we don't have much time, but the for me, the the questions that I run through when I when I run into a problem or I'm, I'm having trouble drawing something or whatever it is, do I know what it would look like if I did it the correct way? That mm -hmm. is absolutely number one. Number two, which is also probably the most important thing ever, is are you completely focused? And that goes into well. This comes up all the time because I th all think that I'm totally focused, mm -hmm. but I'm not. I have the music on in the background or, or something's going on or I'm thinking of something else yeah. and I'm not completely focused on, on the task. And in order for you to improve at something or to really be pushing the boundary of, of what you are doing, you must be completely involved, completely focused. Every conscious action that you're taking needs to be towards the the thing that you're doing because that's that's the only way to push yeah your limits so if you're not totally focused on something then that could be a reason why you're screwing up and it happens to me all the time and it's it seems really simple but you don't typically consciously ask yourself mm -hmm. like because even if you have nothing else going on and you're working on the thing like if I'm drawing a picture, there's no music on, there's nothing going on. I'm just, it's just me in the picture. I don't typically consciously ask myself, am I totally focused on the thing? Yeah. But I'm starting to, and I'm realizing that a lot of the time I'm not. And as soon as I consciously decide to completely be fully absorbed in the, in the problem, then 
then I start coming up with some solutions. So that would be my number two question. Yeah. I think, I think we'll get more into this next week. I, I have decided that for anything that is sufficiently complicated, like being a, a performer or an artist, you know, tic-tac-toe isn't like this because the game is not sufficiently complicated, but chess is. For anything that is very difficult, where there isn't really a skill ceiling, you know, you don't see people hitting the very top and then stopping, you know, where, oh, you're, the highest you can get is 1800 rated in chess and that's it. Like you, there's really no limit to it. For anything like that, I think that the, the potential complexity for your mental model is infinite. Like there is no limit to how many different branches and concepts and visualizations that exist in your mental model, right? Like right now you're working on drawing the skeleton. I don't think there's any real limit to how detailed and, and intricate and perfect that could be, right? I mean, no, I mean, and there's, there are certain artists that are just so phenomenal, like some inhuman level and you watch them and it's right. just, and, and they could be better. Like, even they right. have a mental model that is not utterly perfect. You know, there is some pose, some position, some particular area right. of a skeleton they could not draw perfectly. Anyway, the, the mental model thing is something that I think when you're learning, you are either investing time trying to improve your mental model or you are trying to push some of those fundamental skills at their boundary, trying to, to, which is dictated by your mental model, right? If you can picture yourself executing something, say playing some very difficult passage on a guitar, then you can't just sit there and picture it. You are going to have to develop the physical ability to do that. So you're either improving your mental model or you're pushing those fundamental skills or you are just wasting time. That's it. Those are, right. those are the three buckets that your time goes into. And it is unbelievably easy to sink time into the wasting time bucket that right like we said that's the kind of the default thing that your body and your mind tend to want to do you have to be very careful and conscious about not doing that and, and putting your time into those those other two things and i think there are a lot of emotional signals that come up that can let you know that there's something wrong with your mental model or that you aren't pushing your more fundamental skills to their limits. And I think maybe next week we start getting more into that about how do you know when you're improving your model and how do you know when it's missing and, and things like that. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I have a lot more to say, but okay. Well, yeah, we'll save some for next week, I guess. We're here for a while. So yeah. All right. Cool. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Well, I, well, I, I guess the, Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Do it. The thing that we're trying to get across is, is that we don't have a catchy phrase like, does it spark joy? But you you need to be able to ask yourself some big question yeah. in order to figure out what's wrong. So I've started asking myself these questions, and they seem to really be working for me. And it, it helps me organize the the problems as they come. So... Right. I don't know. Yeah. I feel I, like we strayed so far from our original topic, but... Well, like we said, it's a big one, and it's complicated, and we're trying to get there. And I'm sure people will have input. 
what they think their the method ought to be. All right, fair enough. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of, thanks everybody. Leave your input, please. This is something that we are, I would say, obsessed with. We are trying to understand these things and and do them in practice and look at what works and what doesn't. And we really feel like the world is a bit underserved because we don't have a whole lot that that gives you this this plan for how you learn something. Uh, so please leave your comments, give us some feedback. Remember, if you're listening on a podcast platform, you can email us at the podcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, leave a YouTube comment. We love reading them. See you next week.